Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19 through 25. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. We're going to continue in our series on church membership, and this morning the topic is going to be church attendance. There is a uh, widely accepted saying among preachers, the problem with preaching about church attendance is the only people who hear it are the ones who are already there. It's probably the source of the saying that you are preaching to the choir, right? So instead of lecturing or berating you this morning, it's going to be my goal to encourage and challenge you through the clear teaching of the Word of God. Hebrews 10 verse 25 is probably the most well-known and widely used verse dealing with church attendance, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. We'll see in a moment that church attendance is absolutely a good application of those words, but they don't exist in a bubble. As with every text, there is a context, and I want to make sure you understand the context so you get the lesson that this is teaching. Overall, a consistent theme of the book of Hebrews is simply, Jesus is better. The writer keeps, throughout this letter, glimpsing back to the Old Testament and seeing individuals from the Old Testament or topics from the Old Testament and saying, essentially, Jesus is, is kind of like that and I want you to see how Jesus is like that, but at the same time, he's better, right? He brings God's message to us like the Old Testament prophets, but Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels because he's the creator of the angels, He's a better lawgiver than Moses. He is a better leader than Joshua. He is a better high priest than Aaron or any of Aaron's descendants. Jesus is better. Specifically, in this chapter, Hebrews 10 is arguing that Jesus is better than the old sacrificial system. I'm not going to try to go into it in detail, but just point out a couple of things. In verses 1 through 3, if you look at them, it says that those sacrifices had to continually be made year after year. In verse 4, he just says, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could really take away sin. In verse 10, we're sanctified, he says, through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus 
once for all. Incidentally, don't let anyone mislead you. That is not saying one person for all people. It is saying one time for all time. Remember, the context, those Old Testament sacrifices had to be keep being done year after year, but now Jesus is better. He's come, and by the sacrifice and the shedding of his blood, one time for all time, we are sanctified through his blood. This should be sufficient to sort of begin to put this text into some context. Let's look at verses 19 through 25 again. And as I read it, I just want you to to see verses 19 through 21 is stressing how much better Jesus is, right? By his blood, it's like we can enter in behind the veil to the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God. And so, so, starting at verse 22, you'll see it gets very practical. Since Jesus is better, since he gives us access to God, let's get close to God. Okay, so let's look at it again. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering, for he's faithful who called us, who promised. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So as we focus in on sort of the practical commands that come in verses 22 through 25, now I get to tell you in this sermon on church attendance, I have three points, and none of them are specifically about church attendance. All of them lead to that conclusion, but that's not what they're about. Follow what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Since the Lord Jesus is better, Since he has given us access to God, here's what we need to do with that. If you you know what Jesus has done, if you believe what your Savior has accomplished for you, here's how you're going to live. And he breaks it down to three basic commands. Look at the text. Each of the commands are easy to identify because they start with let us. Right? Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold our profession. Verse 24, let us consider one another. Now, if you look at the text, you should see those. And I want you to follow along with me because at the end of the message, when we start reaching some conclusions about church attendance, you'll be able to know I'm not making this up, right? We're we're drawing from the text in context. If you know how great Jesus is, if you know that his blood has secured forgiveness of your sins and given you access to God, then here's what you're going to do. First, let us draw near. Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
If you keep in mind what this chapter is about, then you'll know that this let us draw near is not primarily saying let us draw near to each other. Although I would love if that's what it was saying and I could just pound that in, right? But that's not what this is saying primarily. It's saying let us draw near to God, right? The each other part is coming. But keep in mind that the writer is saying the Lord Jesus is better than any high priest. He's a, he's a better sacrifice. He is in verse 12, seated at the right hand of God so that we have in verse 19, boldness to enter into the holiest place, right? We have this bold access to God. So let us draw near, let us draw near to God. Right? With each of these let us commands, the writer includes after it some explanatory language, right? expanding on the command. In this case, he offers immediately four descriptions on how a saved person can draw near to God. Look at verse 22. We draw near to God with a true heart, in full assurance, with hearts cleansed and bodies washed. First, We draw near to God with a true heart. The idea of a true heart is with a sincere heart or a genuine heart. You cannot draw near to God in hypocrisy. You don't get to to put on a good show convincing others how close you are to God and then in reality be hiding in your heart sins that prevent you from drawing close to God. James says in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Right? Drawing near to God and having him draw near to you requires clean hands and pure hearts and a single-minded devotion to him. You can convince others that you're close to God, But until you have a sincere and honest heart before him, you won't actually be close to God. So we draw near to God with a true, a sincere heart. Second, we draw near to God with full assurance of faith, he says in verse 22. The writer of Hebrews is actually going to devote a whole chapter to this, more than a chapter. Um, In Hebrews 11.6, for example, he says, without faith it is impossible to please him. So many people wonder whether or not you can have assurance of your salvation. The Bible teaches not only can you, but you should have assurance of your salvation. Faith pleases God. We are justified by faith. We place our faith in the Lord Jesus and we have Full assurance. That does not mean, full assurance does not mean that we think, you know, I've got so much faith that I know I'm okay because I've got so much faith. That's trusting yourself. Having full assurance of faith is having your confidence resting entirely in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is full assurance in the object of your faith complete confidence in christ jesus alone 
The better that you know the Lord Jesus through his word, the more that you'll trust him. The more confidence you'll have, not in yourself, but in him. Listen, we draw close to God in full assurance of faith because through the work of Jesus, we know that God is trustworthy, right? Our confidence is not in our own faith. Our confidence is in his faithfulness. She's going to say in the very next verse. Third, we draw near to God with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Remembering the context here is going to help you know what he means by bringing this word sprinkled into the discussion. He's telling Hebrew Christians that the Lord Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. So back in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, the blood of the sacrifice was taken in and applied. It was sprinkled inside the Holy of Holies and it brought atonement through that act of faith. Every year, the disposition of God towards his people changed from wrath to acceptance. Jesus is better. One time for all time. His blood has been applied so that our hearts are cleansed and the disposition of God towards us has gone forever from wrath to acceptance. Our Heavenly Father is not storing up wrath towards us. We can draw near to Him because the deepest core of our being from our hearts to our wicked thoughts have been cleansed through the application, the sprinkling of Christ's blood. So we draw near to God with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Fourth, we draw near to God with our bodies washed with pure water. This one's a little harder to explain. I would, honestly, I would really like for this to be describing the word of God. Ephesians 5.26 says Jesus sanctifies and cleanses us with the washing of water by the word. But as much as I struggled with it and wanted to make it mean that, Given the context, I think this is actually talking about the picture of baptism. Not that baptism actually cleanses any person. It's the blood of Jesus that does that. But baptism is the act of professing faith in Jesus. And we draw near to God through, right, before inward obedience, hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, a change on the inside, and we draw near to God through outward obedience, submitting ourselves, in this case, to the symbol of baptism, so essentially inward purity that shows itself in outward behavior. All of these are ways that we can draw near to God. Now, just jumping the gun on our topic for a moment, if there was actually a place that you could come to draw near to God, wouldn't it be coming to the assembly to worship him? Doesn't doesn't a, a genuine heart described here, a genuine heart of obedience, lead you to church? Don't you come here and you hear the message of the gospel of Jesus so that you will embrace it with full assurance of complete confidence in Jesus because we're shown over and over from his word that he's trustworthy. Our our confidence is, is right to be placed in him. The place where you're encouraged toward an inward change that displays itself in outward behavior. 
Isn't that what you experience here? Look, Jesus has given us access to God and we are commanded to draw near to God. But look at how it says it there in verse 22. Let us draw near to God. Right? This is written in the plural. Of course, all of us need to individually draw near to God, but we also draw near to God in a community. We do it as an us. Okay, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. The text is going to get there, right? So the first command, let us draw near to God. Second, let us hold fast our profession. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. We have to deal with a translational issue here for just a moment. If any of you happen to be reading this in a modern translation, you'll note it probably says, let us hold fast the profession or confession of our hope instead of faith. And that is actually correct. Of course, we could argue that professing faith in Jesus is also professing our hope in Jesus. There's no doubt that there's a correlation there. But I just want you to know that the word for faith in verse 23 is not the same word for faith as in verse 22. It's not the same word for faith that's used throughout the New Testament. In verse 23, it's the word elpis, which means hope or expectation. In fact, I looked it up, of 54 times this word's used in the New Testament, the King James translators translated it as, as hope every time except this verse. It's evident the writer here means let us hold fast the profession of our hope without wavering. Now, what is our hope? Y'all, that's not a trick question. What's our hope? Where's our hope? Who's our hope? It's in Jesus, right? Jesus was born. Jesus lived perfectly for me. He died on the cross for me. He rose from the grave, defeating death and promising everlasting life to me. Our hope, our expectation is that Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin and someday he's even going to secure us from the presence of sin when we are united with him. We, we hope, we have that expectation of the day where we're going to see him face to face. We spend eternity in his presence. That is our hope. That's our confident expectation. Hope is the expression of confidence in the certainty of God's promises. Even when you haven't seen that promise fulfilled yet. The writer says, hold fast to that. Keep a tight grip on that. Don't let go of that confession, that profession of your hope. And the command here surely implies the warning that there are forces at work which would try to get us to let go of the profession of our hope. In fact, the Hebrew Christians to whom this was written were suffering a tremendous amount of persecution because of their declaration of faith in Jesus. 
You can glance down if you want to verses 32 through 35 and see that. I'm going to paraphrase them for um, time's sake. But verse 32 is essentially, remember when you were enlightened by the gospel, you endured tremendous suffering. In verse 33, some were made a gazing stock. That is, they were publicly exposed while others were partners with the ones being mistreated. In verse 34, you had compassion on those imprisoned for Christ, and many of them themselves had their possessions plundered and willingly let that go because they knew their true treasure was in heaven. And so in verse 35, having experienced all that, he says, don't throw away your confidence in Christ now. There is a great reward awaiting those who remain faithful. Right? So the writer has this great concern that the Hebrew Christians who are suffering for Christ, that they would be tempted to turn back to their old traditional Jewishness instead of standing firm and declaring Jesus as Lord and Savior. The reality is in, in verse 35, don't cast away your confidence. In verse 23, hold fast the profession of your hope without wavering. Right? Don't waffle on this. Don't waver. But before we move on to verses 24 and 25, can you just see at the end of verse 23 why holding fast to our profession of hope in Jesus is a worthwhile endeavor? The end of verse 23, it's not because your faith is big enough. It's not that you have so much faith. Why would you let it go? There's no confidence in ourselves. Our confidence is in the Lord Jesus, right? For he is faithful who promised. So again, our steadfast commitment to living a Christian life is not due to the, like, the tremendous tenacity with which we, we conjure up in ourselves and stand firm in faithfulness. We stand firm in our faithfulness because of his faithfulness we have confidence in him unwavering confidence in him because it was god himself through the lord jesus who's who's promised these things and and we can we can be assured that it's true he's honest and true and trustworthy and entirely faithful so whatever you're going through it will be worth it all when we see jesus and we will see jesus he is our hope don't let go of that Okay, so the commands so far. First, let us draw near to God. Second, let us hold fast our profession. Third, let us consider one another. Verse 24 and 25. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is indeed one of those 40 something, was it 44, 46? I forget what I narrowed it down to. All of those one another passages we read a couple of weeks ago. I love here that the writer uses the word provoke. We're to provoke one another. Generally that word provoke, even in scripture, is used in a negative sense. For example, this is the word that was used by Luke to describe the 
contention between Paul and Barnabas before they went their separate ways. Here the writer is using it maybe ironically for us to provoke one another is natural, but to provoke one another to love and to good works is not. So for example, this week at VBS, I think almost all of the teachers would tell you their experience was that they had specific kids in each of their classes that if you sat those kids next to each other, they would provoke one another, but not to anything good. And there's probably no set of siblings anywhere that hasn't heard something like, why don't you try to bring out the best in each other instead of bringing out the worst in each other? That's just not in our nature. It's not what is easy for us. Similarly, for brothers and sisters in Christ to provoke one another to anger and frustration might be natural, but to provoke one another to love and good works is quite a bit harder. It requires effort. It requires intentionality. In fact, the text even says so. Let us consider one another. Consider one another. Set your mind on others. Contemplate them. Put some thought into this so that your provocation is for their betterment and not something that's going to stimulate them towards sin and and frustration and anger. You put some thought into this so that you can stimulate them to love and to good works. Both of the let us commands in verse 22 and in verse 23, as we said, they're written in the plural form, right? Let us. But we could in this text to this point, in verses 22 and 23, we we could argue that, you know, drawing near to God and holding fast to a profession, those are personal commands. Those Those are things that you do as individuals. But now when we get to verses 24 and 25, y'all, that won't fly. We can't make that argument anymore. Because when we get to verses 24 and 25, these are commands that you can only obey within a community of believers. You have to be part of one of the Lord's churches, an active participant in a body of Christ in order to fulfill these commands of Christ. Y'all, I want you to think about this for a moment. Is it right for you to love others and do good works? Again, I know I said think about it. This is not a trick question. Is it right for you to love others and to do good works? Yes, absolutely. And I want to be clear about that. It's absolutely good that you should love others and that you should do good works. You should express genuine love and you should do do so by the means of good deeds that you do to others. But, is that what the writer is saying in verse 24? No, it's not. The command in verse 24 is not 
love others and do good works. The command in verse 24 is consider one another. So think, put some thought into others so that you can provoke, you can stimulate others that they would demonstrate love and do good works. So this isn't so much about you individually being loving and doing good things. It is about us all collectively thinking of each other and asking, what do my brothers and sisters need? What can I do in order to help them show love to others and help them do good works of righteousness for the Lord? Y'all, this is a decidedly more challenging way to view church. This is not a country club where you pay your dues and come when it is convenient and expect to be serviced when you get here. It gets treated that way, but that attitude is the kind of thing that ends up with 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. Listen, there is a There is a subsection of Christianity which refuses to assemble together. And therefore, they have no means of expressing love or doing good works or encouraging others to express love and do good works in the body of Christ. That group essentially says, I don't need church. And frankly, I can't do much for that group this morning because they're not here. There is another subsection that assembles with the expectation that when they get here, they're going to sit back and enjoy services and somebody else is going to do the work. That's the group that says, well, I will attend church as long as it's providing for me what I want, right? I'm going to shop around to find the place that gives me what I want. Well, it's the music that I like. I like the youth program. The the sermons aren't too long and boring, right? Doubtless, there's no one here who would express it that way, but we have folks like that here. There is yet another group which assembles and then sees the needs that, that, that exist, sees those needs that have to be met, and think that means that they need to add some more things to their to-do list because... Well, everybody could do it, and somebody should do it, but nobody is doing it, and so I guess I have to. That is a group that gets ever closer and closer to burning out. What the writer of Hebrews would tell us is that we need to all be in the same group. We are not to be only willing to do the Lord's work within the church ourselves, but we also need to spend some time thinking How is it that I can encourage my brothers and sisters to show love to others and pick up those good works and also do them? That's the command of verse 24. And then verse 25 is not a separate list of commands. It is all commentary and explanation on, well, how it is that we actually do what verse 24 says. Verse 25 tells us how we can consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And so when you look at verse 25, the first principle in provoking others to love and good works 
This is so simple. Show up. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Listen, the Hebrew Christians who were facing persecution for their faith and their profession in Jesus were no doubt tempted to just pack it in and stop meeting. You can almost hear the first century believers echoing our 21st century excuses, right? Well, I can have a relationship with God just fine through Jesus without the church, and that would be so much easier. But the text here is telling us, no, you can't. You can't. Now, as a practical disclaimer, we should all recognize there are legitimate reasons, not excuses, but reasons why a person can miss church services. The frailty that comes with age can be, it's not always, but it can be a reason to miss church. Sickness, if you're truly sick, do yourself and everybody else a favor and stay home and we'll see you next time. Sometimes a job like doctors and nurses and firefighters, those things need to be done on Sundays. I am thankful that there are people who will answer that call on Sundays, although that should not be every week. It might sound harsh to you, but if you've got a job that requires you to be out of church every Sunday, you need to prayerfully consider looking for a new job. Family can prevent Church attendance, when some family need arrives, sometimes. Although I would encourage you to ask yourself if what you're doing to meet the needs of your families is ultimately for their best, if it consistently removes you from your family here, and in the process sends the message to them that serving Christ is not the number one priority. Emergencies can come up. Right? If your ox is in the ditch, I, I can say this because none of y'all have oxen, but if your ox is in the ditch, get it out. Just don't be shoving that thing into a hole every weekend so you have a reason to not be here on Sunday. Vacations and traveling, those, those are all a good part of life. There's plenty of reasonable causes for missing church. So I don't want y'all to think that church attendance is the be-all, end-all of righteousness. If you miss church sometimes, I don't think that makes you unrighteous, nor do I think we can assume someone who's here all the time is righteous. Our righteousness is in Christ alone. But if you love him, he designed, he built a church and intends for you to participate in it. As this is where I could start giving a bunch of personal illustrations of church attendance issues. I just don't want to tell stories of, of here, right? Because somebody's going to recognize the story and be really upset. So, you know, I pastored another church several years ago, and they're not going to listen online, so it'll be okay. One Sunday, I got a phone call from a church member who was coughing sniffling, explaining they couldn't make it that day, and immediately forgot that they were friends with a pastor on Facebook and posted all of their pictures of their fun day at the lake. Pretty similar things can happen here. 
Or I have a pastor friend who heard this excuse. I, I love this one. Pastor, I would attend your church, but it's too far to walk and it's too close to drive. Y'all, you wouldn't believe some of the excuses that people will make not to assemble together. Or maybe you would because you've heard them or you've made them. None of them are new. The writer here adds, as the manner of some is. In other words, in the first century, some were making it a practice to skip assembling together. Can you believe that was happening 2,000 years ago? Turns out it did not take COVID in the year 2019 to damage church attendance. It's been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. There's plenty of churches experiencing a post-COVID malaise and where some of it happens because some folks were so thankful for online services, they started to forget that actually assembling is necessary. It's a vital part of worship. So let me just say, I know that you can hear the service online and you can listen to the message online. And in fact, if you want to listen to messages online, I'll be glad point you to preachers who are going to preach far better than what you'll hear from me. But what you'll never be able to do online is assemble to thoughtfully consider the people who are around you to be an encouragement to them, to provoke them to love and good works. Listen, you know whether you can be at church or not. Now, of course, whether you like it or not, others suspect you know, when you, when you can make it to work and doctor's appointments and school and the grocery store and the ball game and the movie and the concert and all the family get-togethers, but then you can't make it to church, others suspect, but you know, right? You and the Lord know. And all that said, there's one thing I know as a pastor that will absolutely not work to address church attendance. I can't guilt you into being here. That is entirely counterproductive. Any person who hears a message about church attendance and starts showing up more regularly because they've been made to feel guilty, y'all, that person doesn't want to be here. You need to want to be here. If you come because somehow otherwise I might be disappointed, then you're coming for the wrong reason. The only way to successfully address church attendance is for the membership of the church to have a love and dedication to the Lord Jesus that makes them want to be here. It has been said by others that attendance on Sunday morning is actually a Saturday night decision. And there is some truth to that, but y'all, it's, it's more than that. Ultimately, it has to be more. Regular church attendance is not a decision you make at some point when you stop yourself and start asking, am I going to go to church today? Or am I going to go to church tomorrow? If you start even asking that question, if you are honest with yourself, the answer is usually a foregone conclusion. Regular church attendance is based on your answer to this question. Why should I go to church? And unless that answer is from the text, 
because I love the Lord Jesus and what he's done for me, because I want to draw close to God, because I want to uphold an unwavering profession of faith, because I want to thoughtfully consider my brothers and sisters in Christ and be an encouragement to them to show love and do good works. If those aren't your reasons for attending, then you're likely to find any kind of excuse for not attending. This is why we started in context. Back up at verse 19, Jesus shed his precious blood to save you from the wickedness of sin, to give you access to the Father. And so the reasonable thing to do because of what Jesus has done is to draw near to God, hold tightly to your profession, consider others to promote love and good works in them. That's your reason for assembling. The pastor giving you a guilt trip is never going to be a good enough reason for assembling. Your real concern should be whether or not the Lord is satisfied with your faithfulness. And the text would tell you assembling together is a good work of obedience that satisfies God. And on the contrast of that, what about forsaking the assembly? Y'all, the uncomfortable reality is that forsaking the assembly is sin. It displeases God. You can keep reading in verse 26, kind of frighteningly transitions immediately into questions of sinning willfully. Y'all, it is our job to say these things to one another. Look at verse 25 again. To thoughtfully provoke others to love and good works, you have to show up and, he says, exhort one another. Exhort sends sound like a word today that we would use as a substitute for berate. That's not what it says. It's actually the Greek word parakaleo, which means to come alongside and encourage each other. Encourage each other to love and good works. And then he adds, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So for anyone who might mistakenly think, well, This is all well and good in the command for first century Christians, but I'm not sure it applies to us. The end of verse 25 tells us the truth is, if anything, this is more relevant to modern churches than it was in the first century. Don't forsake assembling with others, encourage one another, and do it even more as you see the day approaching. Not just any day, but the day. Day. This is a reference back to verse 23, which commanded us to hold fast to our profession of faith or our confession of our hope. Our hope is in that certain promise of God, even though we haven't experienced it yet. Our hope is in that ever-approaching day when the Lord Jesus, who loved us and died for us, is going to return for us. As that day comes closer, your need to assemble together is even greater. What we need to ask ourselves is what we really believe. And then ask ourselves, does my behavior correlate with what I say I believe? Do you believe the Lord Jesus shed his blood to save you from your sins and give you access to God? Do you believe that he 
rose again, that he has ascended to the right hand of God with the promise that he will someday return for you. If so, are you drawing near to God, having that nearness that he's purchased for us, embracing that access we have through Jesus? Are you standing firm in that confession, unwavering in your confident trust in his faithfulness? Are you considering the influence that you have on your brothers and sisters to encourage them to love and to good works by step one, assembling together, showing up? Y'all, we need this, and we need it even more as the last day approaches.